Part ten of the History of the Caliph Bathek by William Beckford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. But let us return to the Caliph and her who ruled over his heart. Bababalouk had pitched the tents and closed up the extremities of the valley with the magnificent screens of India cloth, which were guarded by Ethiopian slaves with their drawn sabres to preserve the verdure of this beautiful enclosure in its natural freshness. The white eunuchs went continually round it with their red water vessels. The waving of fans was heard near the imperial pavilion, where, by the voluptuous light that glowed through the muslins, the caliph enjoyed at full view all the attractions of Nouronihar. Inebriated with delight, he was all ear to her charming voice, which accompanied the lute, while she was not less captivated with his descriptions of Samara and the Tower Full of Wonders but especially with his relation of the adventure of the ball, and the chasm of the Giaur, with its ebony portal. In this manner they conversed for a day and a night. They bathed together in a basin of black marble, which admirably relieved the fairness of Nouronihar. Bababalouk, whose good graces this beauty had regained, spared no attention that their repasts might be served up with the minutest exactness. Some exquisite rarity was ever placed before them and he sent even to Shiraz for that fragrant and delicious wine which had been hoarded up in bottles prior to the birth of Mohammed. He had excavated little ovens in the rock to bake the nice manchets which were prepared by the hands of Nouronihar, from whence they had derived a flavour so grateful to Vathek that he regarded the ragouts of his other wives as entirely mawkish, whilst they would have dined at the emirs of Chagrin at finding themselves so neglected, if Bakreddin, notwithstanding his resentment, had not taken pity upon them. The Sultana de Lara, who till then had been the favourite, took this dereliction of the Caliph to heart with a vehemence natural to her character, for during her continuance in favour she had imbibed from Vathek many of his extravagant fancies, and was filled with impatience to behold the superb tombs of Istakar and the palace of forty columns. Besides, having been brought up amongst the Magi, she had fondly cherished the idea of the caliph devoting himself to the worship of fire. Thus his voluptuous and desultory life with her rival was to her a double source of affliction. The transient piety of Vathek had occasioned her some serious alarms, but the present was an evil of far greater magnitude. She resolved, therefore, without hesitation, to write to Carathis and acquaint her that all things went ill, that they had eaten, slept, and revelled at an old emir's, whose sanctity was very formidable, and that, after all, the prospect of possessing the treasures of the pre-Adamite sultans was no less remote than before. This letter was entrusted to the care of two woodmen, who were at work in one of the great forests of the mountains, and, being acquainted with the shortest cuts, arrived in ten days at Samara. The princess Carathis was engaged at chess with Morakanabad when the arrival of these woodfellers was announced. She, after some weeks of Vathek's absence, had forsaken the upper regions of her tower, because everything appeared in confusion among the stars, whom she consulted relative to the fate of her son. In vain did she renew her fumigations, and extend herself on the roof to obtain mystic visions. Nothing more could she see in her dreams than pieces of brocade, nosegays of flowers, and other unmeaning gewgaws. These disappointments had thrown her into a state of dejection, which no drug in her power was sufficient to remove. Her only resource was in Morakanabad, who was a good man, 
and endowed with a decent share of confidence. Yet whilst in her company he never thought himself on roses. No person knew aught of Vathek, and a thousand ridiculous stories were propagated at his expense. The eagerness of Carathis may be easily guessed at receiving the letter, as well as her rage at reading the dissolute conduct of her son. Is it so, said she, either I will perish, or Vathek shall enter the palace of fire. Let me expire in flames, provided he may reign on the throne of Solomon. Having said this, and whirled herself round in a magical manner, which struck Morakanabad with such terror as caused him to recoil, she ordered her great camel Al-Bufaki to be brought, and the hideous Nurkis with the unrelenting Kafur to attend. I require no other retinue, said she to Morakanabad. I am going on affairs of emergency, a truce therefore to parade. Take you care of the people, fleece them well in my absence, for we shall expend large sums, and one knows not what may betide. The night was uncommonly dark, and a pestilential blast ravaged the plain of Katul that would have deterred any other traveller, however urgent the call. But Carathis enjoyed most whatever filled others with dread. Nerkes concurred in opinion with her, and Kafur had a particular predilection for a pestilence. In the morning this accomplished caravan, with the woodfellers who directed their route, halted on the edge of an extensive marsh, from whence so noxious a vapour arose as would have destroyed any animal but Albufaki, who naturally inhaled these malignant fogs. The peasants entreated their convoy not to sleep in this place. To sleep, cried Carathis. What an excellent thought! I never sleep but for visions, and as to my attendants, their occupations are too many to close the only eye they each have. The poor peasants, who were not over-pleased with their party, remained open-mouthed with surprise. Carathis alighted, as well as her negresses, and severally stripping off their outer garments, they all ran in their drawers to cull from those spots where the sun shone fiercest the venomous plants that grew on the marsh. This provision was made for the family of the emir, and whoever might retard the expedition to Istakar. The woodmen were overcome with fear when they beheld these three horrible phantoms run, and, not much relishing the company of Albufaki, stood aghast at the command of Carathis to set forward. Notwithstanding it was noon, and the heat fierce enough to calcine even rocks. In spite, however, of every remonstrance, they were forced implicitly to submit. Albufaki, who delighted in solitude, constantly snorted whenever he perceived himself near a habitation, and Carathis, who was apt to spoil him with indulgence, as constantly turned him aside, so that the peasants were precluded from procuring subsistence for the milch-goats and ewes which Providence had sent toward the district they traversed to refresh travellers with their milk, all fled at the sight of the hideous animal and his strange riders. As to Carathis, she needed no common aliment for her invention had previously furnished her with an opiate to stay her stomach, some of which she imparted to her mutes. At the fall of night Albufaki, making a sudden stop, stamped with his foot, which to Carathis, who understood his paces, was a certain indication that she was near the confines of some cemetery. The moon shed a bright light on the spot, which served to discover a long wall, with a large door in it standing ajar and so high that Albufaki might easily enter. The miserable guides, who perceived their end approaching, 
humbly implored Carathis, as she had now so good an opportunity, to inter them, and immediately gave up the ghost. Nerkes and Caffor, whose wit was of a style peculiar to themselves, were by no means parsimonious of it on the folly of these poor people, nor could anything have been found more suited to their tastes than the sight of the burying-ground, and the sepulchres which its precincts contained. There were at least two thousand of them on the declivity of a hill, some in the form of pyramids, others like columns, and in short, the variety of their shapes was endless. Carathis was too much immersed in her sublime contemplations to stop at the view, charming as it appeared in her eyes. Pondering the advantages that might accrue from her present situation, she could not forbear to exclaim, so beautiful a cemetery must be haunted by ghouls, and they want not for intelligence. Having heedlessly suffered my guides to expire, I will apply for directions to them, and as an inducement will invite them to regale on these fresh corpses. After this short soliloquy she beckoned to Nerkes and Caffor, and made signs with her fingers, as much as to say, Go knock against the sides of these tombs, and strike up your delightful warblings, that are so like to those of the guests whose company I wish to obtain. The negresses, full of joy at the behests of their mistress, and promising themselves much pleasure from the society of the ghouls, went with an air of conquest, and began their knockings at the tombs. As their strokes were repeated, a hollow noise was heard in the earth. The surface hove up into heaps, and the ghouls on all sides protruded their noses, to inhale the effluvia which the carcasses of the woodmen began to emit. They assembled before a sarcophagus of white marble, where Carathis was seated between the bodies of her miserable guides. The princess received her visitants with distinguished politeness, and when supper was ended, proceeded with them to business. Having soon learnt from them everything she wished to discover, it was her intention to set forward forthwith on her journey. But her negresses, who were forming tender connections with the ghouls, importuned her with all their fingers to wait at least till the dawn. Carathis, however, being chastity in the abstract, and an implacable enemy to love and repose, at once rejected their prayer, mounted al-Bufaki, and commanded them to take their seats in a moment. Four days and four nights she continued her route, without turning on the right hand or the left. On the fifth she traversed the mountains and half-burnt forests, and arrived on the sixth before the beautiful screens which concealed from all eyes the voluptuous wanderings of her son. It was daybreak, and the guards were snoring on their posts in careless security, when the rough trot of Al-Bufaki awoke them in consternation. Imagining that a group of spectres ascended from the abyss was approaching, they all without ceremony took to their heels. Vathek was at that instant with Nironaha in the bath, hearing tales and laughing at Bababaluk, who related them. But no sooner did the outcry of his guards reach him than he flounced from the water like a carp, and as soon threw himself back at the sight of Carathis, who, advancing with her negresses upon Al-Bufaki, broke through the muslin awnings and veils of the pavilion. At this sudden apparition Nironaha, for she was not at all times free from remorse, fancied that the moment of celestial vengeance was come, and clung about the caliph in amorous despondence. Carathis, still seated on her camel, foamed with indignation at the spectacle which obtruded itself on her chaste view. 
she thundered forth without check or mercy. Thou double-headed and four-legged monster, what means all this winding and writhing? Art thou not ashamed to be seen grasping this limber sapling in preference to the sceptre of the pre-Adamite sultans? Is it then for this paltry doxy that thou hast violated the conditions in the parchment of Argyre? Is it on her thou hast lavished thy precious moments? Is this the fruit of the knowledge I have taught thee? Is this the end of thy journey? Tear thyself from the arms of this little simpleton. Drown her in the water before me, and instantly follow my guidance. In the first ebullition of his fury, Vathek resolved to make a skeleton of Al-Bufaki, and to stuff the skins of Carathis and her blacks. But the idea of the Geor, the palace of Istakar, the sabres and the talismans, flashing before his imagination with the simultaneousness of lightning, he became more moderate, and said to his mother, in a civil but decisive tone, Dread lady, thou shalt be obeyed, but I will not drown Nouronihar. She is sweeter to me than a mirabolan comfit, and is enamoured of carbuncles, especially that of Gyamshid, which hath also been promised to be conferred upon her. She therefore shall go along with us, for I intend to repose with her beneath the canopies of Solomon. I can sleep no more without her. Be it so, replied Carathis, alighting and at the same time committing Al-Bufaki to the charge of her women. Nouronihar, who had not yet quitted her hold, began to take courage, and said with an accent of fondness to the caliph, Dear sovereign of my soul, I will follow thee, if it be thy will, beyond the calf in the land of the Afrits. I will not hesitate to climb for thee the nest of the Seymour, who, this lady excepted, is the most awful of created existences. We have here, then, subjoined Carathis, a girl of both courage and science. Nouronihar had certainly both, but notwithstanding all her firmness, she could not help casting back a look of regret upon the graces of her little Gulchen Rose, and the days of tenderness she had participated with him. She even dropped a few tears, which Carathis observed, and inadvertently breathed out with a sigh. Alas, my gentle cousin, what will become of him? Vathek, at this apostrophe, knitted up his brows, and Carathis inquired what it could mean. She is preposterously sighing after a stripling with languishing eyes and soft hair who loves her, said the caliph. Where is he? asked Carathis. I must be acquainted with this pretty child, for, added she, lowering her voice, I design before I depart to regain the favour of the Geor. There is nothing so delicious in his estimation as the heart of a delicate boy palpitating with the first tumults of love. Vathek, as he came from the bath, commanded Bababalouk to collect the women and other movables of his harem, embody his troops, and hold himself in readiness to march in three days, whilst Carathis retired alone to a tent, where the Gior solaced her with encouraging visions. But at length waking, she found at her feet Nerkes and Kafor, who informed her by their signs that, having led Al-Bufaki to the borders of a lake, to browse on some moss that looked tolerably venomous, they had discovered certain blue fishes of the same kind with those in the reservoir on the top of the tower. "'Aha!' said she, "'I will go thither to them. These fish are passed out of a species that, by a small operation, I can render oracular. 
they may tell me where this little Gulchenrose is, whom I am bent upon sacrificing. Having thus spoken, she immediately set out with her swarthy retinue. It being but seldom that time is lost in the accomplishment of a wicked enterprise, Carathis and her negresses soon arrived at the lake, where, after burning the magical drugs with which they were always provided, they, stripping themselves naked, waded to their chins, Nerkes and Kafor waving torches around them, and Carathis pronouncing her barbarous incantations. The fishes with one accord thrust forth their heads from the water, which was violently rippled by the flutter of their fins, and at length, finding themselves constrained by the potency of the charm, they opened their piteous mouths and said, From gills to tail we are yours. What seek ye to know? Fishes, answered she, I conjure you by your glittering scales. Tell me where now is Gulchenrose. Beyond the rock, replied the shoal in full chorus. Will this content you? For we do not delight in expanding our mouths. It will, returned the princess. I am not to learn that you like not long conversations. I will leave you therefore to repose, though I had other questions to propound. The instant she had spoken the water became smooth, and the fishes at once disappeared. Carathis, inflated with the venom of her projects, strode hastily over the rock, and found the amiable Gulchenrose asleep in an arbour, whilst the two dwarves were watching at his side, and ruminating their accustomed prayers. These diminutive personages possessed the gift of divining whenever an enemy to good Mussulmans approached. Thus they anticipated the arrival of Carathis, who, stopping short, said to herself, How placidly doth he recline his lovely little head! How pale and languishing are his looks! It is just the very child of my wishes! The dwarves interrupted this delectable soliloquy by leaping instantly upon her, and scratching her face with their utmost zeal. But Nerkes and Carfor, betaking themselves to the succour of their mistress, pinched the dwarf so severely in return that they both gave up the ghost, imploring Mahomet to inflict his sorest vengeance upon this wicked woman and all her household. End of part 10